welcome to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. We're supposed to be living an upside down life, right? I think it's Acts 17, they came in, they said of the Christians, they turned the world upside down. They were actually turning it right side up, right? How many are really upside down now? Uh, hey, uh, just want to let you know, I talked to Randy and Leo in, in Thailand, you know, I talk to them every Friday uh, evening because it's Saturday morning their time and Randy wanted me to express to you his appreciation, support, love, prayers. Uh, God's doing some amazing things there. Uh, they went to a Thanksgiving community feed. Um, there were a lot of people there and they actually got up and sang a song of Thanksgiving. The men in the home and Randy and Leo were up there too. They don't know Thai so they were lip syncing. <laughs> But, but the others were, and, and it was amazing because the community had seen the change in their lives, those men. And so God's opening up the door. They've had uh, a meeting with the mayor and a pastor who's very excited about what God's doing there. They had him over for dinner. They came back again for another dinner, and things are going. But uh, anyway, Randy wanted me to tell you that he loves you, misses you, and he's doing great. He's teaching English to people there, yes. Yeah, right, absolutely, right? Apostle Paul all over again. Church says, wait a minute, we know that guy. <laughs> Don't bring him in here, but God changes lives. How many believe that? Amen, yes. How many are glad about that? How many wives are glad that your husbands are changed? <laughs> Larry looked right at Tina there. Uh, so, so Isaiah 9, as we jump into God's word this morning, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, Lord, speak to us this morning. We look for your divine intervention, even as we listen to your word. And pray for you to divinely intervene in not only the hearts of our people out there this morning, but also my heart. We ask for transformation. We ask for an obedience to your word. We ask for a faith that believes wholeheartedly and doesn't doubt your word. It's never had to be revised like science books and history books have, and it never will. Your word stands forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We live in a wonderful and yet fearful day, I think you would all agree. It's a wonderful day because of the accomplishments of modern science and technology. We have these huge metal birds that cover thousands of miles in just a few short hours. We have these floating palaces that offer all of the extravagance to seagoers of the finest resorts in the world. We have increased medically to the point of conquering the plague, smallpox, hepatitis C, and other scourges of the physical body. It is a marvelous day indeed. I think we all agree with that. But yet, happiness and security seem further removed than ever before. We face dangers and hazards of unparalleled dimensions, and it's caused mankind to contemplate the most crucial questions. What does it all mean? Where's everything headed? Is there anything to history at all? The seers and poets of old, the Greek poets, dreamed of a golden age, a distant past they would look at, but they would say there's no real brightness in the future. There's no real hope in the future. Plato himself pictured an ideal state of organized philosophical principles that would be the ideal society, but even he himself realized that there was not much hope. Virgil sang of one who would deliver the world from its sufferings and by whom the great line of ages begins anew. I mean, what would it be like if the newspaper was delivered to our front doorstep and there was no bad news at all? I mean, it, it didn't matter what section you turned to, you would find nothing but good news. You know, you, you go to the business section and there's nothing but a pure and perfect economy that's taking place. You go to the front pages and all you see is these great things happening. Happening every, every portion of that newspaper would have nothing but great news. The sports edition would say, the Eagles won again. They're still undefeated. For years and years and years, still undefeated. Uh, but but when, when we, what would that be like if you Googled terrorism and nothing came up? I mean, really, the ideal community, the ideal society, we know will never be achieved through the efforts of man. The Christian knows beyond any shadow of doubt that our hope is in the kingdom of God. We know beyond any shadow of doubt that our biblical hope is not in the, the, the same category as the Greek poets that would dream of an ideal state, but yet know that it would be unrealized. We turn to the scriptures and we see that the kingdom of God is really a major theme. In the Old Testament, we read of scriptures like Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. In Psalm 99, 1, we see the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see where the Lord reigns. We see where the Lord reigns here and there. He is sovereign. We believe that. When we get into the New Testament, we see that the theme of the kingdom of God is a major theme in the Gospels. 
I think in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we see that it's mentioned at least 60-something times, and I think with the parallel passages, it's mentioned 85 times, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is used synonymously. Kingdom of God, it was Jesus' primary message, the kingdom of God. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we see him winding down towards the end of his ministry when he's in prison in the book of Acts in chapter 28. How does Acts close? There Paul is imprisoned and people are visiting him. And the question is, what is he telling them? And we see in Acts 28 verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great, greater numbers from morning until evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets in the very last verses of the entire books of that book of Acts reads this verses 30 31 he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him speaking of the apostle Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The story of the Bible is the story of the kingdom of God. And, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. But a lot of people, when you hear that phrase, kingdom of God, that term kingdom of God, what comes into your mind? When you think of the kingdom of God, it's used kind of loosely. We talk about the kingdom often. When Jesus prayed, he said, your kingdom come. Thy will be done, he said. We're to pray that way. But what is the kingdom of God? So I want to touch on three things this morning. I want to talk about the definition of the kingdom of God. I want to talk about the expectation of the kingdom of God. And I want to finish with the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But first, beginning with the definition of the kingdom of God. Again, what does the Bible teach us? What is it talking about when it says and refers to the kingdom of God? Primarily, God's kingdom is his reign. That's what it's speaking of. It is not speaking of um, a realm. It's not speaking of a people. Whenever the kingdom of God is used, it is speaking of his reign, his absolute authority. Now that does create a realm and it does create a people, but when we think of the kingdom of God, we can't think of a people first, we can't think of a realm first, we must think of his absolute reign. This is obvious by the words used in the Old Testament. We see the Hebrew word Malkuth in the Old Testament for kingdom and in the Greek, uh, we see in the New Testament, Basileia, meaning kingdom, both those words are speaking of uh, a primarily means and rank and authority of a king, sovereignty exercised by a king. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, those words say the rule of God, that's what it's meaning. You say, why is that important to understand that at the beginning? Because we understand that as Brett prayed that we're not just transferred into the uh, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, right? From the, from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, we're transferred from that kingdom to another kingdom. It primarily means we're now under his rule. A lot of people don't get that. That when we say we belong to the kingdom of God, we're saying that we belong under his rule, under his authority. 
So as subjects of the kingdom, we need to grab that first. If you want to sum up a definition of the kingdom of God in just a simple phrase, it would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what it primarily means. Earthly kingdoms are limited. God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is universal. God's kingdom extends to all of creation. His rule and his reign extends to all of creation. That goes back to the beginning when he created man in his own image. He wanted us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue the earth, fill the earth, go to the ends of the earth. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So there's no question of his sovereignty there. Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So we have been transferred into this kingdom of God and we're under his sovereignty now. He has absolute rule and reign over our lives. And not only that, this kingdom has a ruler. It isn't just about his reign, it is about a specific ruler. Um, it is ruled by God's appointed and anointed Messiah. That was the expectation of the kingdom of God. We're looking for that Messiah who is appointed by God and who is anointed by God. When John the Baptist came out preaching, he said in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did he mean by that? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If God's rule is over all the earth, if God's rule is everywhere anyway, and all of a sudden we get in the New Testament, why does there need to be an announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What he meant was that God's kingdom of the Messiah has now intruded into human history because we're talking about a king kingdom that belongs to the Messiah, the anointed one from God. In the Old Testament, they would anoint kings. If somebody was to take rulership, we saw when the, the king was, uh, when David was anointed king, uh, God was placing his authority and rule in his lap. When David died and uh, Solomon became king, his son, they, Zadok the, the prophet anointed him. It was a symbol that God had appointed him as the absolute authority. Messiah in the Old Testament means anointed. In the New Testament, Christos means anointed. So God will not only redeem his people, but he will also be king of his people. You have to ask yourself that if I proclaim Jesus as king, is he really Lord of my life? How does that play out in my life? It isn't just a proclamation, it's a life now. Because now we're under a different rulership. Jesus, uh, or Paul said in Ephesians 2, that we used to walk according to the ways of the prince of this world. And we don't do that anymore. We don't do business that way. We now live under God's authority. And Jesus rules. Daniel 2 verse 37 says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might and the glory, power, might, and glory are all synonymous with kingdom and our expressions of authority which speak of the kingdom as the rule which God has given to the king. And we know that person to be Jesus Christ today. When Jesus went to the cross, 
He stood before the Roman governor, Pilate, and Pilate was questioning him, and Pilate was kind of like, what's going on here? The Jewish leaders are bringing this guy to me for trial, and I can't find anything wrong with him. I can't see anything that's happened to him. And when Pilate was questioning him, it says in John 18, verses 36 to 37, after he answers, asked him if he's a king, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. People say, where is the kingdom of God? I don't see it. Where is it? Talk about this kingdom. It's within you. First coming of Jesus was for redemption, to incorporate us into the kingdom. There will be a visible reign when he returns. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 21, now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. You and I know that to be true today. That's why you're here. You've been redeemed. You've been born again. Now you are under his rule and his reign. You believe that and you know that to be true, right? Jesus said, unless a person be born again, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You see that. You know that because you've been born again. And that implies that we come under his rulership and we have a whole new life that we live now. So it's important that when we talk about the definition of the kingdom of God, it's not a people first, it's not a realm first, it's his rulership. And we come under that. Now the expectation of the kingdom of God was seen in the Old Testament, uh, and it began at the very beginning. We see that God promised it. When God created Adam and Eve, one of their creation mandates was to rule the rest of the creation under the authority of God as his vice regents. He just basically said, you are going to have dominion. In Genesis 1 verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we were given dominion. God put us in charge of his creation, the rest of his creation. But then we surrendered that. We surrendered that. We no longer lived under his authority. But things turned sour in Genesis chapter 3. We read the story. Adam and Eve sinned and they handed the kingdom over to Satan at that time. Not the kingdom, but they handed over their rulership to Satan at that time. So in Genesis chapter 3, Satan takes over and now we see the world the way it is. But what's interesting to me is in the very midst of judgment, when God brings judgment in chapter three, he also brings hope. God does that often. 
in the midst of tragedy, we always see God speaking. We always see the light breaking through in the tragedy. And it was no different in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. In other words, God's saying there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict between two kingdoms, between two kingdoms. And even though Satan rules this world, God is above him with his sovereignty. It's kind of like King Herod, right? King Herod was ruling Israel at the time that Jesus was born, but King Herod was not really the ruler. He was not really the king. He had to rule under the emperorship of Rome. Rome only allowed him to rule with certain obligations and certain authority, but the emperor had him in his grip. So even King Herod was not a king with absolute sovereignty. Even though Satan is ruling this world, he's ruling the unbelievers, he's leading the world astray with deception, but God is still in charge. God is still in control. God is still the one that's calling the shots. So he makes this promise in Genesis chapter 3. And what I want you to see is that promise of the seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, pointing forward to the cross. Jesus delivered a fatal blow to Satan at the cross. And so we see this promise in Genesis 3 that God says there's going to be a seed that will come from the woman and this seed is going to crush Satan. So in the midst of judgment, the way things are happening, we see God even promising there's going to be this seed from the woman and then God promises to Abraham in chapter 12. He makes a promise to Abraham and he makes a covenant to Abraham in chapter 12. But in chapter 15, he formalizes the covenant. And then in chapter 17, he brings up this idea once again. He says in verses four to six, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multiple." of nations, no longer shall your name be called Abraham or Abram. Your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. There's a promise of kings coming from him, and that's going to narrow down with Israel. So in Genesis chapter 22, the seed comes up again. Genesis 22, verse 17, God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely, surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The word for offspring is the Hebrew word zerah. It's the same one used in Genesis 3 for seed. God is now making the promise to Abraham. We know that as we read the scriptures that the nation of Israel comes from uh, Abraham and a nation is birthed, a nation is formed. We have kings that are set on the throne. The 12 tribes of Jacob become the nation of Israel as he changes the, his name to Israel. Now, God promised this. God made a promise and people struggle with the promises of God. Can God really come through with a promise? Can he really make good on his promise? And I think what he promised in Genesis chapter 3 should put every argument to bed about whether God can come through 
with his promises or not. He not just promised it to, at the beginning, at the fall. He not just promised it to Abraham, but he also prophesied it through his servants. His servants prophesied about the kingdom of God. We read that in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. We don't need to read that one again, but what I want you to see is 2 Samuel 7. He makes a promise through the prophet Nathan that there will be somebody who will rule on his throne forever. And it's one of the most impacting, one of the most startling prophecies in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 to 13 says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's interesting about that promise is Israel's history. Because Israel had to be questioning, and they did many times, where's the promise of God? He promised somebody would rule on the throne of David, but where, where is that happening? So Solomon's born, David's son, and Solomon takes over the kingdom, but at the end of his life, he goes off the deep end. The Bible says that his heart was turned astray from God because of all the women that he chased. He had some like 700 uh, wives and 300 concubines and, and all these women turned, God's, turned Solomon's heart away from God. And the Bible says that God was angry with him, that God was angry with him, that, that he gave Solomon so much. He gave him the wisdom and he said, I'm gonna give you things that you didn't even ask for. I'm gonna give you gold. I'm gonna give you chariots. I'm gonna give you all of these things. And Solomon, at the beginning of his life, was appreciative. But then his life went on, and he got into his kingdom, and God had blessed him more and more. His heart began to stray from the Lord. And at the end of his life, you've got the wisest man in the world who wrote most of the Proverbs, the wisest man in the world, goes off the deep end with God. And that's what's said in his obituary. That would be on his tombstone today. That was his epithet that the Lord was angry with Solomon. That's how his life came to a close. So when Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. It didn't stay unified. You had Jeroboam ruling the 10 northern tribes of Israel, and then you had two southern tribes by Rehoboam. So the kingdom was, was no longer unified under one king. There was a power struggle going on. The kingdom divided. And so people were already asking, what happened to the promise of David? Where's this promise going to take place? And then the 10 northern tribes go astray from God. They start getting into idolatry. They break covenant with God. And in 722 BC, God sends Assyria down to the 10 northern tribes and they ransack Israel. And they take them away captive. So the 10 northern tribes are destroyed. And then you got the two southern tribes of, of Judah where Jerusalem was, the holy city. And all of a sudden they break covenant with God. So God sends the Babylonians in and in 586 BC, Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple is destroyed. The very thing that they looked to as the presence of God dwelling was now gone. So here they are in captivity under the Babylonians. And they didn't stay a world superpower, so the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. 
And the, the, the Medo-Persians under King Cyrus released the people back to their homeland to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. But when they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt the temple, there wasn't a true king. They didn't have a kingship anymore, so the people are still wondering what happened to the promise of God. There's supposed to be this person that sits on the throne of David and his kingdom's supposed to be established forever. But now we have no king. Did God's promises fall to the ground? That's what people were saying. They understood the prophecies. They understood the anticipation. Where is he? And then when Jesus is born, King Herod was ruler. And he was Idumean. He wasn't even Jewish. He was part Jewish and he was part Edomite. And so the Jews never accepted him as a king because the Edomites attacked Israel when they were coming out of, out of Egypt. And so here they are. The Jews are living under King Herod, who wasn't a true king because he was a puppet king under Rome. Where's the promise of God? There's no hope. And even though they kept anticipating, when's the Messiah going to come? When's the Messiah going to show up? Where's the promise of God? They were disappointed time and time and time again. And that was the question. Where is this seed? Where is this seed that was promised in Genesis 3? Where is this seed that was promised to Abraham? Where is this seed that was promised to King David, where is it? And we need to understand that. That when the Bible speaks of God's character, it says in Hebrews it's impossible for him to lie. It is absolutely impossible for God to lie. That's why when I approach the word of God, I believe it. It's not in his character. His perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness says that he can't even tell a lie. And we live in a culture that it's hard to trust anybody. I mean, think about that. They even said that 85% of job applicants lie on their application. I mean, we live in a culture filled with lies. Look at the impeachment deal going on. We, we, even though people know what's right, they still lie. We see it in our leaders. We see it in students. We see it at the job site. We see so many people that tell lies. And you talk to people and they say, how can you trust anyone today? Even though kids don't trust their parents because they've seen them lie. They're sitting on the couch and somebody calls and they say so-and-so's on the phone. And then you tell, tell them they're not, I'm not here. So we teach our kids to lie. The, 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 but God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And that leads to the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is an already and not yet. In other words, it's here now and yet it's future that we have the kingdom of God within us. Our hearts have been born again, but there is this promise where Jesus will come back and he will set up his rulership. It's gonna be in Jerusalem. He will rule the world just like Isaiah 9 says. 
There's going to be perfect peace. There's not going to be the crime rates. There's not going to be the, the pornography. There's not going to be any of the stuff we know today will be in the future. It will be in the future. But, but, but for now, we know that the kingdom of God was inaugurated. Now it's inaugurated with these things. Write these down. Number one, it's evident in the annunciation of Jesus' birth that when we talk about the inauguration of the kingdom of God, we're saying it's evident. And it became evident in the annunciation of Jesus' birth. You remember when uh, Gabriel shows up to Mary and Gabriel shows up to Mary and, and, and cluing her in on everything that's gonna happen. You're a virgin, but you're gonna have a baby. She's like, how can this be? And, and, and Gabriel says, with God, nothing is impossible. But he says something very interesting to her, and that's found in Luke chapter one, verses 30 to 33. These are Gabriel's words to Mary. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Prophecy that God delivered to King David through the prophet Nathaniel has come to pass. We see it at the birth announcement. The seed of the woman is now coming. The conflict between the two kingdoms are going to come to a culmination. That now we see the promises of God that are going to be fulfilled. And then in Luke chapter 2, I love it because God always appears to the lowly people in life, right? He always re appears to people like you and I, man. We're just waking up in the morning and we're living our lives and, and all of a sudden, man, God appears, you know. He, divine intervention, right? And, and I love that about God because he does have a heart for the tax collectors. He does have a heart for the prostitutes. He does have a heart for the sinners. God always appears, it seems like, to the lowly. He does that with the shepherds. Who are you gonna announce, right? Who... If you and I was announcing the birth of a king, we would certainly make it come out of Jerusalem. We would make it come from where the throne of Herod is, right? We're gonna announce it through the cities. He doesn't do that. God gives the message to the shepherds first. And so in Luke chapter two, verses 11 to 12, when he's born, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ. The Lord, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So there's a savior that's promised, God's redemption. But the other words there, Christ, is important because it comes from the Greek Christos, meaning anointed. Whenever you see Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his name. Jesus is his name. Christ is who he is. He's the anointed one. He is the anointed um, king of the throne. So Christ, Christos, Jesus Christ, the anointed one that God had promised. And then also, he doesn't say a Lord is born. When the announcement comes, it says the Lord is born. The Lord is born. In the Greek lexicon, Lonida defines Lord first and foremost as a title for God in Christ and the one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind, Lord, ruler. 
That's the definition, first definition of Lord. So God's promise of a seed that would take the throne of God's kingdom was delivered. The promise of the seed in Genesis 3 that went on to Abraham and then went on to David, both are significant because the promise to Abraham was through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that's why Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3, and he says in verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and two seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The world is blessed through all of that. So it's evident in the annunciation of Jesus' birth but it's also evident in the proclamation of Jesus' message. What did Jesus say? What was his sermons consisting of when he came out and started preaching? Mark chapter 1 verse 15 tells us, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The question has to be asked, what is fulfilled? It isn't history, history's still going. What is fulfilled? It, it's the promise of God that, changed, that, 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 that traces back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand because the arrival of the true king of God's kingdom has come. That's the promise that's being fulfilled. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time, look at that, the fullness of time. In other words, when God's time had come, on his timetable, on his calendar, right? The Jews, where's the king? Where's the promise? Where's our deliverer? Where's this? Where's that? And, and all this through 400 years of struggling, 400 silent years till Jesus shows up on the scene, their question was, where is it gonna happen? Who is it gonna be? When is it coming? And it always comes on God's timetable. For the Jews, it seemed like an eternity. They didn't have the true king as they did in David. They didn't have that king that they can come under and trust in. And so now Jesus shows up and he is the true king at the fullness of time. Seed of the woman that God promised in Genesis 3.15 has come in the person of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God intruded into human history like never before. Isn't that beautiful to know that And Jesus, right, his signs and his miracles were proof that, man, the kingdom is here. He healed the lepers. The lame guy at the temple when Peter and John were there, they, 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 they healed the lame guy. Isaiah chapter 35 says of the millennial reign when the kingdom happens, when it culminates at the end that the, the, the mute are going to sing or hear, the, the deaf are going to hear, the mute are going to sing, and the lame are going to leap for joy. So everything is a foretaste of what's going to culminate in the future. And so when Jesus did his signs, when he was casting out devils and demons, he was showing that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. So Luke chapter eleven twenty, Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so it's evident right? The kingdom of God and the annunciation of Jesus' birth. It's evident in the proclamation of Jesus' message, but it's also evident in the progression of Jesus' church. 
This has to be taken note of, you guys. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said this. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says he's going to build his church. He says he's going to build his church, right? And so we see the progression of his church. We see people that are ministering to others. The gospel's being preached. People are being healed. People are, are, are um, uh, being restored in their lives and things like that. And that comes through the church. God funnels his blessings through the church. We see the kingdom manifested, right? So Jesus says, I will build my church. And remember, on the day of Pentecost, you had 3,000 saved, right? The Holy Spirit's poured out. 3,000 people are saved. But it didn't stop there. The church continued to progress. Two, two chapters later, Acts chapter 5, 5,000 are saved. 5,000 men, it says. So I don't know how many women and children. So you go from 3,000 to chapter, and then you see this intrusion into the world when the Apostle Paul begins to plant churches. So those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, if you were to take the numbers today, 2.3 billion people profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Not all are, but 2.3 billion, which is roughly almost a third of the world's population. Kingdom of God has come. Kingdom of God was inaugurated at his death and resurrection. And you heard uh, Sean Bradford last week. Sean Bradford said through just the Jesus Film Project, 100,000 people a day are getting saved. Iran, I told you, is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. There's a movement taking place in Iran. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's obvious through the progression of his church. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, kingdom, this kingdom, that. You can believe in your fairy tale stuff. No, this is not a fairy tale. This is the real deal. This is the real deal. So, so it's evident there, but listen to me. Fourthly, <laughs> Larry, listen to me. It is evident in the restoration of God's people. It is evident in the restoration of God's people. This is amazing because, Brett, you quoted it, Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So what does that mean for you and I today? <laughs> that was the intro to the sermon. Now we'll get into the sermon. What, is, what, what does that mean for you and I today? All right, when we talk about being transferred into the kingdom of God, what does that mean for you and I today? And I'm gonna give you three D words that you can remember, all right? I, I, I know that I do this sometimes and I want you to remember them. Uh, these D words are not curse words, so don't worry. Uh, but first D word is dwelling. Dwelling, write that down. Dwelling, what I mean by that, listen to me, God with us. All the way through the Bible, it's about God with us. Go back to the Garden of Eden before the fall, and what was it? It was, it was Adam and Eve in the garden, and God with us. The presence of God, when it came to the tabernacle, it was God 
with us. When the temple was built, it was God with us. When we get into the New Testament, it's on Christmas cards. It, it says in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God dwelling with his people in a very special way. It is God with us. When you get into the end of the Bible, when, when you're talking in the book of Revelation, you come to the end of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It is about God with us. God with us. That's when he desires out of you and me. He desires to fellowship with us. He desires to dwell with us. He's not only with us, he's in us. Emmanuel. God with us. He desires, I, I try and I tell people this. God loves you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to commune with you, but you cannot come to God on your terms. You have to come to him on his terms. And when we do that, we see God with us. The presence of God is powerful in a home. The presence of God is powerful in a family. And it, it, it just turns us around. I mean, what in the world is Randy doing in Thailand? That's what people would say. God's presence. He's dwelling with him. Dwelling, dwelling. Number two, dominion. That's the second D word, dominion. Dwelling with God again, we also have dominion again. That dominion which was lost in Genesis 3 is now regained through Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're not just priests. Look what it says, but you were a chosen race, a royal. That's kingship, that's rulership, that's dominion. A royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We now have a unique calling, you guys. We, we now have dominion. We, we now have control now, again. The Holy Spirit fills us, and now we do God stuff. The Holy Spirit fills us now. Now we take back what Satan has stolen. We now take back our families. We take back our children. We bring light into darkness, and we bring order to chaos. Satan comes in and he brings darkness. Satan comes in and he brings chaos. He brings confusion. He wants to destroy everything in the order that God has set up. But now, where we didn't have control before, where we didn't have dominion before, we now have the keys once again under the rulership of God. We're now vice regents and we now can live according to his word. We can now live according to his ways and we can live within his will and now everything changes. Satan's a liar. Satan is a liar. 
You don't think he whispers his naughty lies to me sometimes? You're still a no good bum. He still tries to stir up my past. It's usually through a guy I burned on a drug deal or something years ago. I bring up a deal and, and uh, I paid one guy off before. Came up and says, hey, you remember you burned me when you, and I gave him $200. I burned him for $200 29 years ago. And he's, I'm just saying, do I owe anybody money in here? <laughs> Larry raises his hand. Yeah, I did buy drugs from you once, didn't I? <laughs> oh, it was aspirin. So we have, we, we dwell, dwelling, dominion, but also dynasty, you guys. This is so fantastic. This is so marvelous. What we belong to now is a dynasty. When we're talking about the restoration of God's people, when we're talking about being restored to him, we're not just talking about dwelling in his presence. We're not just talking about regaining dominion in our lives where we now have the power to live according to his ways, his word, according to his will, but we also are part of an amazing dynasty. In Romans chapter eight, listen to this, verses 16 to 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit and we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians chapter three, verse 29. And if you are Christ, how many belong to Christ today? Raise your hands. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, seed, heirs according to promise. We are heirs to the... James 2, 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This whole idea of living in a dynasty with him and understanding our inheritance has a couple important implications one, we should live as heirs in the kingdom, right? We're seeing Prince Andrew go through some stuff right now because of his connections with Jeffrey Epstein, and he had to surrender all of his duties. Uh, you know, that's, that's the, when I think of a sovereign and how, how England is run, I think under the Queen Elizabeth and then her dynasty there. And uh, we're called to live as heirs of the kingdom, we're called to live as who God called us to be. And then two, we should understand the riches that we have as heirs. What has God provided for us? The love, the joy, the peace, the forgiveness. So many things in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises or yes in Christ. God's word is filled with riches. These are all promises for those who are heirs. And we have to walk in those promises. When you start reading the Bible and you understand that all God has promised, it isn't about the do's and the don'ts. It's about having a vision for what God has given you. 
It isn't about stay off drugs, stay off alcohol, you know, quit cheating and all of that. Those are, those are the minor issues compared to what God has called you to be. And all of these promises that God has given us from the Old Testament to the New Testament need to be grabbed in our lives. Too often people bring the Bible down just to a moral book. I can't do this, but I can do this and I can't. No, no, get a vision for what God has given you. And what he's called us to be when he calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you start reading the word of God and you see the promises there, it just ignites your heart. There's times I read the scriptures and I shout. Yourself's like, what's that? You know, and you do, you, your heart just overwhelms with joy from discovering the riches in God's word. And what that means for you and I today and how the story ends. Remember the song? What is it? I'm forgiven. How could it be you, my king, would die for me? All of the promises in scriptures. We are heirs. We live in a dynasty that is unbelievable. It makes worth getting up every morning worth getting up. And the world right now is hopeless. They are looking for the pill that's going to make them, their hearts be filled with hope. They're, going, they're looking for something that when they go to bed at night, they can wake up in the morning and find something new only to find out that they peter out. That the fuel in the tank runs out and they find themselves once again without hope. Like the Greek poets of old. But our hope is in the kingdom of God. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. When you think of Christmas, you have to think of the greatest hope in the world intruding into this world and God's promises being fulfilled that he gave us all the way back to Genesis 3, that in the midst of judgment, there was promise. There was promise. If you're here today and you have not found that, you need to. You need to, only Christ can provide that. Some of you are trying to climb the ladder. I heard, Brett, I was in the back, but I heard through the, 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 the um, speakers that he was talking about people say all roads lead to the top. But you can't climb that mountain, you can't. Even when we proclaim Christ, we cannot climb that mountain. He's got to pull us up. And that's where Christianity is different too. It's not about turning a new leaf over, right? The New Year's resolutions are gonna come. The gym memberships are gonna shoot up. Cigarette sales are gonna go down for a week. Alcohol sales are gonna deteriorate for a moment. And then by the end of January, I guarantee it, I will still be eating cheesecake. I was going to quote a scripture, but I'm not. Okay, I will. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but I didn't want to put myself on that. It's about love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14 says. Uh, but you know what, you guys? There's nothing greater than to know that we have a sovereign king whose kingdom will last forever. 
and who has given us so much. And we are joint heirs with him according to the scriptures. Man, when Christmas comes around, I'll tell you what. First day I celebrated Christmas knowing Christ was the greatest thing in the world. How can it be the greatest thing in the world? I was in a drug rehab, separated from my wife, destroyed all of my relationships, burned money, still paying people back. But, but when I see them and they bring it to my attention, <laughs> don't lie to me now. I mean, my mind isn't what it used to be, so I forgot all those things, so don't come up and tell me something. That, but anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm in this, I'm in this drug. I mean, people from the outside world would say, Man, how can you be happy? Really? Man, I remember when that Christmas tree lit up and we got a choir together at Teen Challenge and we started going door to door. That's what we did. We sang Christmas carols. I lip sync, but they sang Christmas carols and people's faces lit up, man. You would have entire families come to the door and we're singing about the joy to the world. You know, we're singing these great, marvelous hymns to these people, and kids are smiling, and parents are smiling, and they had no clue we were a bunch of drug addicts not long ago. You see, when Christmas comes, it's a game changer. Changes everything. Jesus does. God's promises are true through and through. Lord, thank you for this day, and may we... Be as the wise men and worship him who has been born king of the Jews. As we leave today, Lord, let us be mindful that your promises will never fall to the ground. It is impossible for you to lie. Doesn't matter how impossible things look. You have the power, the ability, and the know-how to fulfill every promise you made. Nothing will hinder that. Satan won't hinder it. Mankind cannot hinder that. The kings of the world cannot hinder that. Your throne is above all thrones. Let us realize that today, Lord. And those who have not come to the king, those who have only said, I know Jesus, but have not come under his lordship, may you move on their hearts today. May they be born again in the precious name of Jesus Christ.